Why do we write obituaries? Why do we read them? The simple answer is this. To remember. To remember those that we have lost. To have a record of love, of friendship, of a space no longer filled. To see in our minds what those loved ones were like in life rather than what we will see in the coffin or inside the urn. We want to be reminded of life, even in the announcement for death. These microscopic biographies are also a reminder for family and friends to pay their respects, to make sure they've got the date and time of the services correct to see which relatives they've yet to contact or deliver a casserole to. They are clippings to be glued into a scrapbook. But how easy is it to distill down an entire life into a handful of sentences? How do we make the evil ones palatable on paper? How do we pack in all the success and accomplishments of the noble ones? They are, in some ways, the same info you might find in box scores or on the backs of trading cards. A few notes about their legacy, career, and lived-in cities. But there are more statistics. Who preceded them out of this world? And who they've left behind? Who has already been written about in one of the back pages of the newspaper, and who has yet to? If you look closer, between the lines, sometimes other storylines might appear. You might see more about the person who has passed on, by what's not said, by what has been left out. These omissions make up the bulk of a life. Not official titles or promotions, military rankings or lists of siblings, but the secrets between them. The obituary is like Hemingway's iceberg. Only 10% is visible on paper, just like what was visible to most of the people who knew you. They don't know the full story. But, like the obituary, they know the highlights. No one really knows what fills in those gaps. No one knows what secrets were kept. Just like no one can ever really know what traces of ourselves we leave behind. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 10 Kate sat at the dining table. Dogs lay at her feet. Somewhere, Denny was using a circular saw. 
Without taking her eyes off of the computer screen, Kate sipped cold coffee. She was going to throw the mug in the microwave when she found what she was looking for. Augusta, Georgia. Mr. Patrick Errol Westerberg was born September 24th, 1936, in the city of Macon, Georgia. Patty, as his friends and family lovingly knew him as, served in Vietnam and retired as a sergeant first class in the United States Army at Fort Gordon, Georgia. After leaving the service, Patrick split his time between a career in engineering at the Augusta Rail Yard and the Forest Hills Golf Course, where you could usually find him playfully cursing the 13th hole. Patrick's mother, Amelia Westerberg, knee Hines, and father, Orville Westerberg, preceded Patrick into his kingdom, as did brothers George and Robert Westerberg. He is survived by his wife of 52 years, Rose Westerberg, knee Shepherd, brothers Bruce and Christopher Westerberg, and sisters Camelia Strong and Carrie Johnson. Family and friends will be receiving visitors between 2 p.m. and 4 p.m. Monday, January 22, 2019, at Gibson & Sons Funeral Home on Peach Orchard Road. Funeral services with full military honors for Mr. Patrick Westerberg will be held at Andersonville National Cemetery at a later date. The family would like to send special thanks to the RNs, Lillen, CNAs, and the entire hospice staff that helped ease Patrick's transition from this world. Kate had no idea why it took her so long to think obituary. She'd pored over receipts and that simple laminated student ID looking for clues about the life and death of her house. She even had Denny call the Home Depot, pretending to be Patrick Westerberg, in order to find out if their stove was still under warranty. But a cursory Google search for the previous man of the house hadn't yet occurred to her. Since the conversation with their neighbors, Kate had convinced herself that it was, in fact, Patrick who was lingering in her home. The weeks following the yard sale and Denny's parents' departure were relatively quiet. Denny had spent most of his time working on the house and down in the basement, and Kate was able to focus on work. Investigating the previous owners had become a sort of side hobby. The more information she found out about them, about him, seemed to lessen the unease she felt in the house. Not that it ever fully went away, but there was something about her hunt that quieted things down. As if that's all the presence wanted. To not be forgotten. But then, there was the one comment Sharon had made. He was a man of secrets. Secrets. Nothing about that obituary lent itself to conspiracy theory, or to a sinister hidden life. But then again, why would it? Obituaries are meant to celebrate, not condemn. Even Ted Bundy's obituary probably had at least one or two nice things to say about him. Even the commenters on the website where she found the obituary had nothing but glowing words. My condolences for the passing of a great man. I knew Pat for many years. He was a great guy and a true friend. We worked together, bold, 
and we relived war stories. He was always ready for a round of golf. The world is an emptier place without him in it. Jimmy L. He was such a dear friend of my dad, Lenny Stout. I can only imagine the sorts of things they're talking about on the other side right now. Sorry for your loss. John 1427. Stacy V. Rose, my thoughts are with you during this time. Patty will surely be missed by many in our community. I will definitely miss him as my rail buddy, moving cars around the tracks. Rest in peace, Patty. Ben O. Rest easy during this difficult period. The dance must always end. We are with you. Esther 112. Sharon R. So, so very sorry to hear this sad news. It was an honor getting to know Mr. Westerberg. He was a good man that we respected. He trusted us to work on his cars for many, many years. You are in our prayers. Hap D. Dolan's Auto Service. A pillar of this community. An incredible loss. But you, we, will see him again. Psalm 3418, Jeremy P. There were pages and pages of these. Some were unabashed business plugs, getting their name out there, about appliance repair or free bowling. But most were earnest, heartfelt. The man who'd lived in Kate's home, who might still be living there, was loved. He was, at least on the surface, a good man. Still. Secrets. Was he into something shady? Is that why he was always spending his time in the basement? Maybe it was too many movies or true crime podcasts, but Kate's mind went to imprisoned girls or ritualistic ceremonies. She pictured hideous things occurring that would leave fingerprints on the house. Things that would leave a curse. But those comments said otherwise, as did the pictures the search engine turned up. Photos she'd found of Patrick Westerberg didn't support anything sinister. His student ID showed yellow-tinted, heavy, metal-framed glasses. He had a thick mustache and a buzzed crown of thinning hair, the sort you'd associate with a man approaching middle age in the mid-70s. His expression showed past trauma, but also hope. The sort of man who you knew had seen things you couldn't imagine, but was now content to golf and drink beer and tinker in his basement. Then, there were the more recent photos. He looked like a sweet old man, bespectacled, white-haired, smiling. A grandpa. But he wasn't a grandfather. He wasn't even a father. That's what the neighbor had said, and the obituary confirmed this. A wealth of brothers and sisters, but no offspring. Was this why Kate had become so fixated? How could a couple be married for over 50 years without having children? Sure, maybe they were unable, either due to errors in Rose's reproductive system or in Patrick's. Or maybe they simply didn't want kids. But that, too, was outlandish. 
They married and lived through the white picket fence, 2.5 kids' dream world of the 20th century. To be together that long and have nothing to show for it felt ludicrous. Jerk, Kate scolded herself. She rose from the dining table and went to the microwave. Listening to the hum of the radiation, she thought, Nothing to show? How about 50 years of marriage? Isn't that enough? Her and Denny were doing good, and she had no preconceived notion of future stress or infighting that might lead to the dissolution of their relationship. But still, 50 years? That was just beyond her comprehension. That was 50 years of inside jokes and memories. 50 years of built-up resentments or irritations. 50 years of sagging and wrinkling. 50 years of support. Of friendship. Of making it work. From the kitchen, Kate could hear Denny come inside from the backyard. Then head toward their bedroom. Then she could hear the sound of the shower. The microwave buzzed, and Kate returned to the table with her coffee. But instead of looking at the laptop's screen, she gazed out the window at the overcast morning. Though the temperature was still nearly unbearable most of the day, the scene outside felt like the first signs of fall. Slight haze, pearlescent dew, a few leaves littered the front yard, as did an overturned styrofoam container that must have been thrown out while the eater sat at the stop sign on the corner. She made a mental note to go out and pick up the trash later, then descended back into her rabbit hole. Maybe that was it. Besides the whole continuing the human race thing, maybe couples had children to make it all worth it. Like, see, we stuck it out for the kids. We helped humanity go on. But would she and Denny help? They'd had many conversations over the years, both before and after their wedding, but no definitive answers or decisions had been made. When his divorce was first finalized, Kate and Denny were insatiable. Back seats, bathrooms, floors, countertops, and with little regard to precaution. Of course, there was a scare, a missed period, and hasty plans made. When the tests came back negative, their lust was tamped, but not by much. As the honeymoon phase faded, both literally and figuratively, so did the constant need for release. They still, even with the house spooking her, found time to get close. But what could be produced by their carnal unions was rarely, if ever, discussed. Denny had made it clear from the outset. He didn't want to have kids. There were the standard reasons, the why would anyone want to bring a child into this fucked up world argument, or that he wasn't, that they weren't in a place to do so, either emotionally or career-wise. They could barely afford the little things they used to splurge on, outside of their mortgages and bills and everything else that adulthood dumped on them. Kate remembered him saying, didn't someone say that just one kid could cost upwards of a half million dollars over their 18-year reign of terror? So, his position was clear, but, and bless him for it, he understood that his opinion, 
his needs and his desires weren't the only deciding votes. Kate, at least at first, was of the bohemian, ultra-feminist, academic mindset, the my art and sex comes first variety. Children weren't on her radar. But while Denny had, basically, just his mother and father, and no siblings or extended family to speak of, Kate brought a full German battalion with her to family gatherings, with each and every one of them asking the couple, over and over, when new troops would be joining their ranks. Kate's mom, Lois, of course, was the most vocal. And their answers were stock. When we're in a better place financially. When I have a few more years of the job. When we move back up here to Wisconsin. These, mostly, staved them off. But then there was Kate's own desire. More than a handful of times, when the couple tied one on together, Kate would start stumbling or slurring her words and listen only to the tick of her internal clock. In the hard light of a morning hangover, the need to reproduce was most often replaced by crushing embarrassment. In the end, though, it was obvious. She wanted a baby. Kate knew this. Denny knew this. And rather than shut her down, Kate's husband said that even though he didn't want to continue his lineage, he'd take the trip for her. They didn't make a decision, a stolid, we-are-having-a-baby proclamation to themselves or the world, but rather simply stopped taking as many precautions. The leftover condoms they'd used after their first pregnancy scare were collecting dust in the medicine cabinet. Kate decided nature could make the choice for them. Denny called it pulling the goalie. They were going to let fate decide. Behind her, the sound of shuffling feet broke Kate's stare from the overcast morning. But she didn't turn around. Not right away. She'd learned to listen, to judge, before going into rooms or turning over in bed. Not all sounds were as they seemed in their house. Then she felt the presence creep up behind her. I've got to run over to Home Depot, Denny said, his voice, along with the musk of his cologne, slowing her heartbeat. Return those drill bits. You want to come with? Get out of the house for a bit? She felt his hand on her shoulder, and she gripped it while standing to face him. The sight of the man before her made her jolt and step back. Kate dropped his hand, then clutched her own together. What? Denny said. Too much? It was taking decidedly longer than it should have for Kate to adapt. The tremble in her body was subsiding, as was her breathing. She knew the man in front of her was Denny. Not ghost Denny or something else. She could feel that it was her husband, but the sight of him was so different that her synapses were misfiring. Denny had shaved, right down to the skin. Since she'd met him, Kate had never once seen Denny without a beard. Sure, She'd seen photos from high school that showed him clean-shaven, but she hadn't seen her husband's chin and jawline in person. She'd felt it through the curly hair of his often unruly beard, but never seen it. You hate it, don't you? No, I... Kate began, then lifted her fingers to stroke Denny's face. His features were sharper than she'd expected, 
and there was the wisp of a dimple in the center of his chin. I've just... You look so different. I'm still sexy, though, right? Denny asked, and wiggled his nose and upper lip. So distracted by his babyish jawline, Kate barely noticed that Denny had retained a mustache. And that's when she realized her shock wasn't simply due to the change in her husband's appearance, but the fact that he now resembled someone. But who? Yeah, sexy, Kate said. She felt a sinking feeling again. But you look like... Burt Reynolds? Teddy Roosevelt? Kate didn't respond. She now had both hands on either side of his face. John Holmes? Denny kissed the inside of Kate's wrist as he said this, then pulled free from her groping fingers. He snatched up his wallet and keys. You know, I was going for that whole classic rock, porn star, Chevy van sort of vibe. Figured, I don't have a job right now, so who cares? No, no. You look like Patrick. Like, almost exactly. Patrick who? Denny was opening the door to the carport, but Kate stopped him. She grabbed the flimsy student ID that she'd stashed on a nearby shelf and held the photo up next to Denny's face first, so she could compare, then flipped the card over so he could see. Yeah, Denny said, chuckling. I guess I do. Even though he was loved, admired, respected, even though he left a long list of friends and family that would miss him, there was something about Patrick Westerberg that unsettled Kate. Something that forced the hair up on her arms and neck. Made her think of the decaying Joan attacking her in the basement. Made her think of her dog's bloodied nails. Reminded her of Denny, straddling her, choking her on the first night of their honeymoon. But she was able to keep all of that locked away. In photos, and in instruction manuals, and in internet searches, Patrick Westerberg could be ignored. He could have been pushed from her mind. But all that was going to change, because now, that dead man was standing right in front of her. Thank you for listening to the first ten chapters of the manuscript found in our basement. These ten chapters represented the first part of the manuscript. Join me next time when we start on book two. Today's episode was read by Dr. Scarelove. Theme music was provided by Atrium Carcheri. You can find Atrium Carcheri and all of Simon's music on the Cryo Chamber label on Bandcamp. As always, don't forget to like and subscribe. And any reviews you leave on Apple Podcasts helps this show find itself into the ears of more listeners. Thank you. We'll see you next week. And remember, there are two types of people in this world. The haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?